BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. A pack of Twizzlers, a Whopper from Burger King, a pint of haagen and a pack of Kleenex? If you're wondering what connects all those things, it's not just a late night at the Swisher household. It's also my guest, Debbie Millman. She's a brand and design expert who has worked on all of those brands and more. And Debbie's also got another claim to fame. She's one of the world's first podcasters, having started her show Design Matters back when podcasts sounded like this. Design now seems to be everywhere. It is in television ads being used to sell products at Target. It is on bus kiosks being used to sell Condé Nast magazines. That was also an era before ubiquitous smartphones, when Donald Trump was just a real estate mogul with a TV show. It is featured in Apple computer ads used to sell iPods. It is on TV shows like The Apprentice being used to outwit other players. So I wanted to ask Millman how we're thinking about design has changed in our digital age, what our future metaverse might look like, and of course, the recent rebrand of Facebook to Meta. Debbie Millman, welcome to Sway. It's wonderful to be here. I want to start off talking about the book and interviews, because both of us do that. You started quite early, 2005, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, the same year that Apple added podcasts to iTunes. I actually interviewed Steve Jobs that year about doing it, and it was sort of virgin territory in that regard. Talk a little bit about how you looked at the medium. I'd love to get why you thought it would be a good place to discuss it. It wasn't so much that I thought it would be a good place to discuss it as much as it was the only opportunity that had come my way to embark on something completely different And I needed at that time in particular something to help sort of reignite my creative spirit. I had been working in corporate design and commercial art at that point for many decades. And the previous decade leading up to the opportunity that I had to to start this little internet radio show was completely consumed by my corporate work. And I just dedicated myself 24-7 to building this branding consultancy. You consulted with firms like, I think it's Burger King, Twizzlers, yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, that you designed yeah. logos, uh, all kinds of different things. Yeah, we, at that point in my career, I'd probably, if you walked into a supermarket or a drugstore, I, I would easily, without exaggerating, say I'd probably touched about 25% of what was on the shelves. And had given up all my music, all my creative writing, the bad poetry I was doing, everything went to the wayside. And I just put everything into this sort of feedback loop that was giving me a lot of success and giving me a lot of self-esteem, but at the end of the day, wasn't really fulfilling my soul. And so when this cold call came in to do this internet radio show, I actually thought they were offering me a job. 
in fact, they were just offering me an opportunity yeah. to pay them. <laughs> pay them to do it. Yes, so that's it was right. That's the ultimate vanity project. But that's how desperate I was to make something new again. So what was your vision of what you were making when you started? First of all, po- the word podcast was not being used at that no. time in 2004 when I was first thinking about doing this. Um, the idea of of doing something like this was was really kind of a Hail Mary. And it felt like, you know, I can invest in this, in, in myself. This is 13 episodes and why not try it? And And then I did. And though looking back on those early shows now, I can say, oh my God, what the hell was I thinking? They're just dreadful. What's dreadful about them? Oh, first of all, the sound was dreadful. I, I, I am a bit of a Luddite. I have a problem turning on the television with our current remote. That gives you the sort of sense of my abilities. I respect it and I love technology, but it's very hard for me to engage with it without mm-hmm. frustration. because it's badly designed, Debbie. Absol- absolutely. Remotes are the worst, one of the worst design devices in existence, as are vacuum cleaners. But in any case, um, I had never had any real training as an interviewer. And I also didn't know really how to listen. I didn't know how to organically move a conversation forward. And as I said, the sound was, we were doing the show on two landlines. And we would, I would sit with my guest across from my desk and we'd each be holding a handheld landline. It was being then pushed through some wires to producers in Arizona who were putting it together. And the whole thing sounded like a squished, tinny conversation between a really newbie interviewer and a very generous guest that was sort of just doing it as a favor to me. How did you evolve as an interviewer? I I thought I was terrible at the beginning, too. I was super jumping in. I was super not listening, um, trying to prove myself a lot, especially because I was, you know, essentially interviewing very powerful men, white men Good at for the you. time. <laughs> I'm glad you were doing that, though. Yeah. Um, my, I'm being strafed by my producer right now, saying I still jump in, but that's on purpose. What do you think a successful interview does? I think a successful interview allows the guests to feel proud of who they are in that moment. Hmm. Why? Why is that the criteria for you? Because I want them to feel comfortable and safe expressing their vulnerabilities, their insecurities, their obstacles. I'm not interested really in talking about the successes. I'm really really endlessly fascinated by how somebody got to that success. How did they overcome their obstacles? How did they overcome self-loathing? How did they overcome failure? And so in order for somebody to feel comfortable doing that, I think they need to feel like I respect what they've done enough to want to know the backstory to how it was that they created what they did. That's what I'm interested in. And can you share that in a really honest way in a day and age that doesn't like to talk about whatever failure porn we pretend is out there? So that's an interesting word, failure porn, because one of the things that you're doing is putting them in an unsafe space, correct? I like managers, they do feel unsafe and they know they might be, like that they yeah, have that's, to. You're, we have very different approaches and you're, and, and I think that's why people listen to you. They know you're going to put somebody in the hot seat. They know you're going to ask the hard questions and really hold them to the answers. One of the things that there's a point where you can be tough that's pointless, not tough for a purpose. And at the same time, you can also lick a interviewer up and down in a way that's really yields no insight whatsoever. 
I don't allow for that. <laughs> if you, I mean, I think that we we are very different, but we are looking for the truth. We are looking for something that is honest. Mm-hmm. So I texted or DM'd a lot of your interviewees and asked them for questions. Uh, this is a question from Tim Ferriss, who I've also interviewed. Hi, Kara. Nice to hear from you. Hmm. I would ask Debbie what the keys are or some of the key decisions to making your guests so goddamn comfortable in the New York City um, studio that they will tell her nearly everything. She's a designer, so I know she's thought about the elements, physical components, prepper approach components. Uh, what are some of them that she thinks matter most? I think that I before the pandemic, I thought that being in this little studio that I had have at SVA, which is the size of a postage stamp and requires two people to sit pretty close to each other, facing each other, um, with just a little table in between, I used to think that it had something to do with this cocoon that we were sitting in together. And I was really reluctant to try to do the show in any other different way because of that instant rapport that I try to have with people. And so now that I've been doing them via Zoom, I think it's just eye contact, like really trying to keep a close watch on someone's every move, being very cognizant of body language. Um, that's something that that I enjoy. So I, I think maybe that has something to do with it. I do think that first question and allowing somebody to laugh while also in the actual asking of this very specific question, the question in and of itself indicates a level of knowledge about somebody's life that I think puts them at ease. Yeah, you took the time. Uh, Roxane Gay, your wife, wrote about that in her essay. It's the amount of preparation yeah. you do. So this is from Esther Perel. Okay. What does the word aesthetic mean to you and how has that changed? It's changed a great deal. Aesthetic is a sort of way of moving through the world, both visually and physically. And I don't think I had an aesthetic. (laughs) And I was shamed very early on in my career by people that did. The acceptable aesthetic back in in the mid-90s was mid-century modern. And I ended up doing a renovation on my apartment. And then I think apartment therapy declared that my prior aesthetic was grandma chic. Oh, okay. So lots of floral, (laughs) chintzy kind of plastic, silk flowers and painted furniture. I did not have an aesthetic. I've grown to develop an aesthetic that I'm now really proud of. But I look back at that older aesthetic as with both nostalgia and shame. Ah, okay. (laughs) I had a stitch pick person, stitch fix, because they could never figure me out because I'd pick weird things. And they said, I figured out you're asexual. Ah, interesting. A stitch fix person wrote it in a note to me. I was like, oh, okay. That's not the word I'd use for you, but I know, I know, but there you have it. I'm fine with it. I'm good with it. Um, Okay. Last question is from Aminatu So. Ask her about her failures. She talks so much about the power of failure, but I never hear poignant examples in her own career. Okay. Um, (laughs) Well, in many ways, my entire career is based on the failure of any belief that I had in my own abilities to do what I wanted to do when I graduated college. And so working in commercial art became a way to be both secure financially as much as I could be while still having a creative element to whatever I was doing during the day. You know, I came out of college entirely on my own without any safety net, so to speak, or internships or job experience. And so 
So you're like the non-evil J.D. Vance, but go ahead. <laughs> and I, my lead gene at the time, the childhood that I had was just safety and security. I needed to be in a place where I had my own bodily autonomy. Nobody was going to put me in any un, any unsafe situations. And I really, at that point, wanted to be... A, you know, a poet or an artist or something that was more in the fine arts and not in the commercial arts at all. But I had no sense that I could do any of that. I felt like it wasn't smart enough, pretty enough, thin enough, connected enough, anything enough. I was just not enough. And so because I did have some practical experience working on the school newspaper, I could do basic, you know, old school layout and paste up and got my first job at $6 an hour at a magazine called Cable View and started a career already sure that I was only able to do a certain number of things just based on who I was. So, so that compromise started with a compromise. Yeah, yeah. But yes and no, it wasn't, it, you know, I told myself that for years, Kara. I told myself that for years that I'd compromised. And then I realized the sort of underpinning criteria in all of that decision-making was safety and security and living in Manhattan. And that's what I did. So, you know, yes, was it a failure in that? In some ways it was a failure, in some ways it wasn't. But I, I don't know, I feel like I fail all the time. And maybe I'm I'm not clear enough with, with that. But I feel like I'm, I'm, I mean, part of the reason I work so hard is because I feel like I'm going to be caught as a failure or an imposter or a fraud. Yeah, you can relax. Well, yeah, we'll see. You can, you can relax right now. Um, so speaking of which, you weren't a failure in design. You had a huge uh, career in it. I want to talk a little bit about design world. Um, how do you define design? I know it's kind of a big, broad question because there's lots of ways to think about it from design thinking you see at, say, Stanford Design Lab, companies like Frog or Idea, to brand logos, to user experience on a website, for example, or organization aesthetic in your own life. How do you think about design? Yeah, I think design is intention. It's choice-making and intention about anything and everything. For uh, professional designers, we are given very specific criteria by our clients about what they want to achieve through a design and that we make very deliberate, intentional choices to bring that visual language to life. That That is design. Um, for me, I'm much more interested in the use of branding via that design. That's the part that is is most compelling to me. Mm -hmm. Meaning how to communicate a set of values, communicate a... Well, you know, we we use brands and symbols to communicate our allegiances. We utilize all sorts of man-made things. They could be religious marks, flags, family crests, wedding rings, campaign buttons, uh, baseball hats, running shoes. These all signify our affiliations and what we want people to think about who we are. You know, everything we consume now, even the most basic commodities, you know, water, salt, they're brands. And now experiences are brands and buildings are brands and Broadway musicals are brands and people aspire to be brands. And that's a whole other yep. sort of thing that I have lots of big opinions on that is often that are often contentious with people. People get very upset with me when I talk about that. People are brands. I want to hear your opinion on that because a lot of that is happening in, a, in an online yeah. space, especially with the vast distribution and reach people can have. So can you talk a little bit about that idea and how that's changed? Because I guess they're influencers now rather than brands. Oh, I hate that word. Oh, I hate that word. Why? Why? Because influencing feels like 
planned manipulation doesn't feel generous. It feels as if you are being asked to change people's minds about something for your benefit, not theirs. So talk about people as brands or influencers. Well, brands, what people, I think, forget is that brands don't actually exist until we make them. Brands are manufactured entities that people can conjure and create with imagination and innovation and technology and so forth. They're not really real in the truest sense of the word real. They don't have a moral compass. They don't breathe air. They don't have a living, beating heart. They don't have souls or feel pain or feel pleasure. They're manufactured. People can own brands and they can direct brands. They can enjoy brands. They can play with brands. But they can't be a brand. But to be a brand takes all of the sort of glorious humanity out of being human out. You become then this manufactured thing and all the things that are so wonderful about being human, changing our minds, being messy, being inconsistent. All of those things are the things brands try to avoid being. So speaking of which, you, you're obviously a brand consultant and you did talk about the rebrand of Facebook to Meta. And you said you wanted to hate it, but you don't. Can you talk a little bit about that Yeah. I mean, when we heard, I I was alerted to the name change a week or so prior, and people were asking me to weigh in on what I thought of the new name. And I was ready. I had my sleeves rolled up. I was going to skewer this because I (laughs) wanted to skewer it. Yeah. Um, And it felt like it was necessary to skewer it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then the name Meta, I was like, damn it. It's a great name. Why? Um, I love the double entendre. I love the sort of self-referentialness <laughs> of the idea of being meta. And so I, I like the name. I think it's a great name. I, I think the logo is okay. I don't think it's anything particularly special. With marks, it's not so much about the mark. It's how it's marketed. You know, so the Nike swoosh wouldn't be as popular if there wasn't like $100 million of advertising put against it every year. In fact, if you turn it upside down, it's the Newport logo. If you turn it on its side, it's the Capital One logo. So the actual construction of the shape isn't really what we love about it. It's the way it's marketed to us that we love. So we'll see how it's marketed. I don't think that the mark is is particularly ingenious in the same way the name is. But... I'm not surprised by that. Very few logos come out and people go, woohoo, you know, just what I was hoping yeah, for. Yeah. Remember the remember the Airbnb logo when that came out? That looked like that looked that it's was- so interesting how almost every logo that comes out now is referred to as something analogous to genitalia. Yeah. It's yeah. it's quite interesting. Um, but when you think about doing that branding, how powerful is it to rebrand? Facebook's a company that was sort of on the run for trouble you know, ending democracy, this and that. That's where their brand was moving. Um, How important is that? Because Google became Alphabet, although we don't quite know why. Because Google was a great brand, I would imagine. Yeah, I think these are smoke screens. They're protective smoke screens. And, and, you know, if you read what I said about Meta, I also suggested that it was a not-so-subtle reference to reminding me of the Altria Philip Morris rebrands. So let's let's hide the bad guys behind some more interesting, better guy and hope that we can pull the wool over people's eyes. But I think, you know, humans are smarter than that. You think? It doesn't work. I, I'd like to think that. Mm-hmm. Did that, did the Philip Morris one work from your perspective? It kind of did. Kind of did. Kind of did. Kind of did. Yeah. Does this one have that feeling? I feel like it's going to. That it's going to work. Yeah, I do. I feel like they have some of the greatest brains behind it. I know some of the brains behind it. I'm not talking about Mark Zuckerberg at all. I'm talking about some of the creative folks there. Um, And I do. But 
all rebrands. You know, a new identity really on its best day should represent an evolution of vision and values. That's really why you want a new logo. But the logo is just a nice foundation. It's an identifier. But in the grand scheme of things, it's irrelevant if a company doesn't change their behavior. We'll see. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Allison Bechdel, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Debbie Millman after the break. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, Plus, This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good, but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. So Facebook's rebrand hinted and directly hit us over the head with the idea of the metaverse, obviously, which they did not invent, but they're trying to grab it. It's a land grab for the word and the name. Um, Let me play a short clip of Mark's presentation of the metaverse last fall. The next platform and medium will be even more immersive. An embodied internet where you're in the experience, not just looking at it. And we call this the metaverse. The metaverse. Those echoes are particularly galling, in my opinion. Um, that's Meta's uh, thing there. But um, did you watch the announcement? What did you think of their vision of this? Because there's all kinds of issues around advertising and branding in it. One critic wrote, quote, uncanny, flat, and banal. It's a dream universe that feels not unlike watching Netflix in three dimensions. I think that the problem we're having now with this introduction is that the technology isn't up to the potential. And so the design of these experiences is still in the early days. And some of the lifelike avatars are lifelike to a degree. You know, it's almost like the Stepford Wives, where you're showing just enough emotion to be human, but not enough to be really engaging. Mm -hmm. It's the eyes. And 
Yeah. So advertising is obviously going to be a big part of the metaverse, metas at least. What happens to brands in an immersive virtual world? Um, some brands are already getting into us. Gucci has a virtual Gucci garden oh, yeah. in Roblox. Yeah. Ralph Lauren has a virtual ski store. Nike bought a virtual sneaker company. Oh, now we're going to see the pylon of everyone yeah. doing it. Is there anything you see that is good or what are you thinking it has to look like? Well, I think that people aren't really that interested in a different form or a different flavor in a brand. They might be entertained momentarily by these things. Ultimately, what they're really looking for now, especially the Gen Zers, is how is this brand going to make a difference in my life? And so if there is a way for these experiences, these engagements, to provide a benefit for someone, and that benefit could be as simple as pure, joyful entertainment, then I think people will feel really excited about being in that environment. If, when they're in that environment, it's more internally driven, it's more about what the brand wants you to think about the brand or get you to buy the brand, then I think it'll be seen for what it is, just a a commercial extension of whatever branding they're doing in the real world. Also, one other thing, if they're in this environment and end up feeling bad about themselves because they can't afford something or because somebody else has something better that they can't attain, then it does a lot of what's happening on Instagram now and people get feeling feel really depressed. I don't know very many people that come away from 30 minutes on Instagram feeling really good about who they are. And I think that that experience in AR or VR is going to ultimately have the same thing happen. So with brands, you're advising them to go slow rather than jump in. Not so much slow, but carefully and thoughtfully. If that means slow, yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you talked about was people feeling badly. And one of the things, I interviewed Frances Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower recently, and I talked about issues of Facebook, and she said platform design choices should be a top priority. What do you think of the idea that design is sort of the root of these issues? I think about it as architecture. The architecture is all off. Um, And how to fix them is a very difficult question, whether it's internal research on Instagram, which you mentioned, suggests that the app negatively affects users' mental health. Um, if, if you were looking at it just from a design perspective, what's the problem? Well, I think it's anthropological. It's absolutely biological and anthropological. Humans compare. We compare. We want to feel superior to others, or we want to feel part of the, a group of others. We feel safer and secure in groups. That's happened since the beginning of modern humanity. And when you're looking at something like Instagram and what you perceive that you see is highly performative, often highly retouched, and you can't help but feel inferior in comparison. I mean, frankly, if Instagram was in existence when I was a teenager, I don't know that I would have made it out of my teenage years. You know, it was I was already so fragile. What could be done besides not looking at it? to change that? Are there design things that could slow it? I talked to someone recently and they talked about the slow internet, just like slow food, you know, the Mm -hmm. idea of slowing it down. The other was like, you can't push virality anymore. You have to push context. Is there a design way that it could be done or is it just the way people are? Like one of the things I think about when I think about Instagram, every straight person who gets married, um, they put their hands in the air like they've won something, like in all their marriage shots on Instagram. And someone posted one of those and then six months later they were divorced. And my friend was like, how could that be? They had their hands in the air. And I was like, because it's a lie. Like it's, it's not reality. And so is there any changes that you could make besides, you know, outlawing people from putting their hands in the air after they get married? I think, you know, 
it's almost impossible to say this, and it sounds so Pollyanna-ish that I'm almost embarrassed to even talk this way. But, you know, whenever anybody tries to be real on Instagram, you know, somebody like um, Paulina Porzakova, mm-hmm. you know, she, she's yeah. been crying a lot. Mm-hmm. Then and there's been numerous articles about the fact that she's crying on Instagram and showing herself as as a sad person. <laughs> and she's gotten so brutalized because she's doing this. Um, in some ways, I think that it's refreshing to put as much of who you are, if you're going to share, that it's there's the real stuff. I don't know how to go about calibrating that. People seem unable to calibrate their emotions on Instagram. There's only one mode of being. And if that's the case, then that'll always be a problem. There needs to be a reawakening of why we're doing that in the same way that Tarana Burke was able to create the Me Too movement. And I don't see that reckoning coming, and I don't know how it would come, but the idea that we all have to be happy, friendly, shiny people on Instagram is one of the big dangers of our time. Although over on Twitter, all hell's breaking loose and everyone's awful and malevolent <laughs> and terrible, yeah, right? I mean, I, yeah, I mean, Twitter is a cesspool. And, and I see what happens to Roxanne on Twitter, and I just don't understand why she's still on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got to be. Sometimes I, I text friends who are on there. I'm like, I'm a professional. You need to stop. Put down right. the Twitter. Put down the Twitter. That's what I do. I do. I'm like, you need a Twitter timeout. Is there anything that's gotten right in design right now? Something that really inspires you? Is there any, like, Wordle? It's kind of simple and basic and easy and beautiful in its own little God, weird way. I love Wordle. I don't know I why. I love Wordle. Why? Why is it des- why is it the design? It's the design. It's simplicity, right? It's just you're one and done, essentially. It, you're one and done. It doesn't feed into the addiction of continuing to do more. Although, of course, there are things like Puzzword now where you can go and play all day if you want to. Yeah, you don't want to. I think that it's charming. There's no advertising. It's not that hard that you're going to be rejected on a regular basis and not feel smart. You know, people love feeling smart. They love feeling smart. That's part of why we love the iHeart New York logo so much. You know, we have to figure it out the first time we see it. It's a word, I. Um, it's a symbol, heart. It's an abbreviation, New York. I love New York. Wow. And while that might seem really banal now, in the 1970s or when Milton Glaser first designed it and it came out... It was a puzzle people had to figure out. And when you do, you get that dopamine hit of feeling smart for that moment. I'm clever. Or when you see the arrow in the FedEx logo, I'm clever. Oh, what a clever thing to have done. And so I think Wordle gives us that too. Anyway, this has been fascinating. See you in the Wordle metaverse, I guess. Absolutely. absolutely. What'll that look like? Oh my God, we'll move them around with our hands. That would be fun. Yeah. That would be fun. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. It's been an absolute honor. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blakey Schick, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orme. Edited by Naima Raza, with original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuelewski. Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with my favorite starting words for Wordle, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Listening.